The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. everyone it is tuesday the 26th of october 2010 and this is episode 89 of the boys of tech with edwin herman that's me and brett king welcome along brett howdy brett it's tuesday of course because here in new zealand yesterday being monday the 25th of october it was labor day exactly and we were going to take a holiday we were well we were kind of entitled to a to a holiday weren't we yeah indeed so we kind of took that and uh anyway there you go there there it is and uh some things have been happening in this in this week maybe maybe it's because of the extra day i don't know but i think someone's just done some benchmarks on browsers and there's a bit of a surprise here because up until now i at least thought that uh, safari was the fastest browser but brett you don't reckon that's true is it no, no. The fastest browser crown is Chrome. Yeah, it's Chrome. And second is also still not Safari. No, <laughs> it's Opera. It is. Mm. <laughs> then Surprise. Safari pulls in. Yeah. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see what Steve Jobs says at his next uh, keynote type thing. Now, oh, I think he'll, he'll just ignore that. He'll, he'll wait until Safari's leapfrogged again and then he'll suddenly announce it. Yeah, I think I think he will. <laughs> I don't think he's going to admit that Google have produced by far the, the fastest, most streamlined browser here. No, they don't like Google for a start. Hmm. In fact, I think there was only one test, and it was in the benchmarking of the 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 beta versions of all of the browsers where Chrome was beaten. Who was that by? Firefox. But it was only in one test. No, Chrome Chrome is, uh, you know, I don't know many people who use Chrome, but those who have tried it that I know, uh, just, I don't know, they didn't seem that keen on it. Mm. Do you use Chrome at all? No, I found the interface quite ugly. (laughs) I have to admit it, I I found the Chrome interface ugly, and so I don't use it. Oh, okay, yeah, I I know a number of people who've, who've said similar things. Yeah, if they made it a little prettier... (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's about usability and user friendliness. Mm. And it's all well and good saying you've got the fastest, you've got the best. But if it doesn't look the best, people aren't going to use it. It's so they need to put a little more effort into their user interface. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe there's a message there for Google. Brett, did you do anything on your long weekend? I mean, you know, we just talked about it being a three day weekend here in New Zealand. Anything special? Uh, nothing special. Just been putting some hours into a new game that came out recently, Fallout New Vegas. It's pretty good. Having fun. Oh, I thought you might have been talking about Medal of Honor. No, no. I didn't get Medal of Honor. Because we'll, we'll talk about that actually in the, in the, when we start the show very soon. <laughs> something I did, I'll tell you something I did on this three-day weekend. It was not really a three-day weekend for me. It was a two-day weekend because on the Saturday I worked at the, the rugby league match, New Zealand versus England. Yeah. So I was, I was selling merch, merchandise, yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, jerseys and footballs and... Did you whatnot. enjoy the atmosphere? 
Was it fun? Well, you know, they apparently there was a survey out, and the uh, rug, the the league crowd, the rugby league crowd, are the wor- is the worst crowd, the roughest crowd. Yep. And uh, certainly, they they kind of came out of the woodwork. I tell you that it's like whoa. But uh, no, look, it was all right. I'm you know I'm not really into rugby league at all. I'm barely yeah. into rugby, uh, let alone league. So I wasn't really something I, I cared about. But you know, hey, I, I sold a, a bunch of stuff, a whole heap of stuff. In fact, it's amazing what people will pay. It really is. <laughs> After they've got a few beers in them. Yeah, I think that's what, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes all the difference. <laughs> yep. But I'll tell you something else I saw during the week that you might be interested in. I don't know how you feel about this because uh, you might not like to hear it, but they did a, uh, it's a TV show I, I saw sometime earlier last week and it was about gamers and mm-hmm. their empathy or their lack thereof, in fact. So what they did is they had two groups of people, one group, playing non-violent games. Uh, I think they were like sports games, football games and so on. Yeah. And then they had another group playing, uh, you know, first-person shooters. What they did is mm-hmm. interviewed each person, but it was actually a fake interview. That the, the whole thing was a setup. So at the beginning of the interview, the interviewer would deliberately knock over a pencil holder and all the pencils and pens and stuff would, would go all over the floor. Yeah. And it was interesting Every single non-violent game player immediately moved to help pick up the pens. The violent game players didn't. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And I think, you know, there's, there's something there. There's something there. And whether it is that they have less empathy or not, or is it just that they're in that frame of mind? Or they, yeah, they spent several hours already knocking over stuff <laughs> and ignoring it. Well, so yeah, well, else knocked yes. it over. They didn't. They didn't care. But I thought it was an interesting <laughs> study from a psychological point of view. Very interesting. Well, yeah, what you took from it, you would have to put in a little more effort to study to determine what was the re- root cause of it. And I, look, you'd I, I have to do far more, and- far more study to determine what is it. Is it because they've been desensitized because they've been playing a game where they're constantly knocking things over and stuff is being moved all over the place, and you just push past it and go past it. Whereas when you're playing a, you know, a sports game, then you're not knocking over random piles of trash as you're moving through buildings. So <laughs> you'd have to put in a little more depth before you could come up with an actual reason for that. Well, there was only the a small part of the show I watched and the, they talked about other stuff. I don't know where it went, but I don't know. Something interesting there. And by the way, before we kick off the show, did you also see the new MacBook Air? What they've done, I want to get your opinion on this, Brett, because I, I can hear you cringing when I tell you this. What they've done in the MacBook Air, to save space, instead of putting a solid-state drive, literally taking the drive and screwing it in mm-hmm. inside, what they've done is effectively put the solid-state drive directly on the mainboard as chips. So there is no actual drive. It's solid-state storage on the mainboard. Wow. They'd have to do some pretty good testing and make sure they've got good quality chips because with the lifetime expectancy of a solid-state drive and the amount of failure rate of the, the, you know, the generations that came out of solid-state hardware, to have it go on your board means you have to replace the entire thing. Yeah, exactly. You can't replace the drive, which I thought I, was... Are they, mm. are they trading off their, you know, their crown of having the most svelte laptop available for the fact that they're going to end up having to replace the entire guts of it when things get corrupted or when it just breaks or fries. Then you have to replace the entire mainboard instead of just the 
the individual component. So for space saving, that's a really good idea. Unless they are still easy to remove and replace, you're looking at a much larger replacement bill. Yeah, that's what I wonder too. And again, you know, only time will tell. It'll be one of those oh, things. indeed. And the, the, the second-hand market on those that particular model of air will be completely crap because nobody's going to want to buy it because you're going to be out of warranty and you're going to have to replace the entire thing if it breaks. All right, shall we kick off the show uh, with the first story that's already taken people by storm and upset a lot of military people? WikiLeaks mm-hmm. has released a whole bunch of war files, as they said they would, yeah. uh, to do with the, the Iraq war. And certainly the US military is, uh, what's the word? I don't know what the word is. They're, they're very angry. <laughs> yes. So, yes, very angry. I don't like, um, you know, it, it's interesting because some things have come out of this, such things as shooting on people who are surrendering. Mm. Very sensitive stuff, you know, stuff that, this is the kind of thing that and really, yeah. pe- pe- you know, the, the US military don't want coming out. Oh, precisely. And, and other things like fabrications and falsehoods around the, the number of military, you know, US military casualties. There's all kinds of stuff which has come out of this. And it's, yeah, it's going to take quite some time for people to go through it and for the, 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 the true numbers and true snippets of information to come to light from this. So it'll be very interesting next couple of months. Well, the military's been in damage control mode for a while now because they knew this was coming out. Yeah, they knew it was coming out. They didn't know exactly what the files were, so they were looking through their own files and going, which of the files most likely to have been included in this leaked lot? And in that, what do we think is going to damage us and what do we think we're going to have to change about our strategies and our plans if that information was released? What I thought was interesting is... um, a story from last week about some analysis from a military organization in the States saying that the outcome of the previous WikiLeaks war documents leak, the previous batch, was negligible. It didn't have the impact that they you know, thought it would. There's no evidence that any people mentioned in the documents, because that was the big thing, you know, you're putting you're putting people's lives at risk because they're mentioned in these documents. There was no intelligence about it actually having caused any significant harm to any of the people mentioned in it. Oh, to any people of the troops. Had, yeah, people in, hadn't targeted yeah. any of the people mentioned in it. It's, so kind of a, a storm in a key, teacup deal there. But we'll see what comes out of this next one. And it is, as you said, it's really quite interesting and a little bit funny to see the, the level of reaction that is coming out of the US military and the presidential administration, how they, you know, they're condemning WikiLeaks for doing this and <laughs> well they'd love to shut the site down they, they, that's what they want to do they, they don't want it but what can they do I mean it's hosted in Sweden it's hosted and, in and, Sweden and, it's and they're doing Sweden, they yeah do they're doing their darndest to try and make you know to try and convince Sweden that it's against Swedish law but it's not <laughs> that's that's what they've come up against so far and they've been looking at other ways of what they, what they can do about it what can they do to prevent this from happening and Really, there's without themselves stepping into the real the realm of doing the illegal, which according to some of the the war logs doesn't seem that far out of the ordinary. There's not anything very legal they can do to get rid of it. What would you mean by something illegal that they could do about it? Oh, they could do all kinds of stuff. Go in, shoot everybody. 
how did solve their WikiLeaks problem? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Well, that you know, well, sort of thing. The, well, like, cons- them stepping outside the bonds, the bounds of legality and international law, and stepping into that black area, which the TV shows love to create television shows about the the black ops and the US sending their elite military in to shoot the people and kill them to stop something bad happening or in in some cases stop something good happening well you know some of the more conservative people have been saying that the person who leaked that should be executed for treason <laughs> they should actually be pretty much killed for wow for releasing this because that's treason. Those exact same people would then have to look at their own government and execute all of them. In fact, you'd have to execute the entirety of the American population because didn't they have a revolt against their government in the past when they were they were previously run by a different country, weren't they? Oh uh, yeah, seventeen seventy six. They didn't comes like how that was going down, and so they got up and they had a war about it and they took over and they put in their place and and their founding fathers wrote this brilliant piece of legislation which guarantees the citizenry the ability that if the government gets too big for its boots again that the US citizenry can rise up and retake control. Is it really in there? Yeah, that was the entire it's the entire reason that it says in the, the constitution that the American populace are allowed to have weapons. It is their right to bear arms. But is that the reason why? Yeah, it's because the the British, when they were there, they tried to limit arms. That was one of the things when everything was starting to go haywire. At least if I am remembering my social studies correctly. Well, look, you know what? (laughs) (laughs) I think you've got a bit of chance of... You got a better chance of getting that right than I do. I tell you that. I'll, I'll, I'd believe anything about history because it's, it's not really my thing. <laughs> you didn't pay any attention during social studies, obviously. No, I don't think I must. I must have skipped that class. <laughs> well, look. Speaking of uh, WikiLeaks, a related story that you may have seen is that the Pirate Party, uh, which, which we know are the, the ones that love Pirate Bay. They love Pirate they Bay. Love they freedom. love yeah. They love freedom and sharing. Yeah. that is that is their creed. Freedom from copyright. Well, what mm-hmm. they want to do, you know, they've, they've always had this problem that at the moment they have to host their, their staff, they have to host torrent sites and, and whatnot somewhere f- physically in some country. And I think, you remember that a while ago they tried to purchase Sealand, which yeah. is that, that offshore rig, and that, yeah, that didn't really go ahead. People who owned that wanted far too much. Yeah, didn't, yeah exactly. Because that was in international waters and the theory being that no one could touch them there. Well, what they want to do now is they've got these, this idea of launching a satellite, their very own satellite. Mm. That is one of their ideas, one of their more wacky ideas. They do have a couple of other really wacky ideas, which I thought were quite interesting. There's their remote-controlled boat <laughs> out in international waters. Yeah, I saw that one as well. Stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. Or putting it up in a balloon. I can't Put see the balloon working. I can't see the balloon working. I can see the satellite. How could they? How could, they, how, how could you not see it working? It would have a much better line of sight. It would pop. They pop. They go oh, up, they pop, no, they come back not down. Not a balloon balloon, more a dirigible, like a Zeppelin. Oh, one of those, not like a weather balloon. No, no, not like a weather balloon. The weather balloon would decay and degrade. Yes. You want something that you can bring in and land and, and refit and something that can cruise around for a while. What you oh, want is we, a solar panel covered dirigible. That Swiss plane. Remember we are covering that Swiss plane? Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's what Swiss they should plane, use. Except, except as, a, as a blimp. So it can, yeah. or it could just you know, go around stay, in circles. Yeah, just stay circle. going backwards and forwards <laughs> yeah. and keeping out of the way of storms. 
you just have it cruising up and down yeah. an area of ocean where it can get out of the way of storms. Now, if something like <laughs> this happened, right, say they put a satellite up or a remote control plane or a remote control boat. Yeah, they still have exactly you- the same comm, don't they? They all still need to be connected to something else on the ground that plugs them into the internet. Well, someone has to provide them with the feed. That wasn't actually what I was going to say, but yeah, you're right. That That's, that's one of their big hurdles I need to get over. But what I was going to say is, what's the bet that someone is going to knock those things out? Because put it this way, if there's no law out there in, in the sense that you, if someone can shoot down someone else's satellite, what are you going to do about it? Do you mm-hmm. think that might actually happen? And I, sus- I suspect it will. Yeah, yeah, it is quite possible. I, I believe there are rules about things going into orbit. But as you said, space is basically, to poorly quote Star Trek, it really is the final frontier. There is no law up there because who's going to go up there and say no? <laughs> there is no space cop. <laughs> Just to go up there and stop your satellite from aiming itself towards somebody else's. But there is plenty of laws to prevent people, you know, ramming your boat or shooting your balloon out of the sky (laughs) down here on planet Earth. But yeah, up there, there is nothing that would stop people being able to intentionally take that satellite out unless you did what they did with their own website. Their website is massively distributed and tons of mirrors all over the place. Yeah, actually they they do. And in fact, what uh, you would do is you would have a swarm of micro satellites. Yes, yeah, now that would work. But Where, you know, the thing is they're really costly. Now that's the thing. To get a giant satellite, yeah, massively expensive. Yeah. But the microsatellites are way cheaper, way yeah, but cheaper. You have you to, actually, have to actually launch though, you have, you have to launch it. I mean, oh the yeah, fuel, it's quite expensive to launch, but then the there are alone. a lot of companies that are, you know, there are a lot of launch companies that have been coming up to put in commercial satellites and to make it cheaper. You know, those ones which launch from the floating platforms on the equator. So there are there are many options. You don't have to go through the really expensive ones of NASA and the Russian space one. I can't remember what their acronym is anymore. There are other commercial satellite launching places. Well, you know what I think? I mean, I, I think it's got the best chance of working, but the least chance of actually going ahead. Yeah, it is the most cost prohibitive. Pretty ambitious. Having yourself a swarm of blimps or a a cool remote-controlled boat would definitely be a lot more feasible, much more within reach of the community. Because it's not like they they can't quite easily access money. They get tons of donations when they've got something up that people are interested in. But the sheer amount of donations required to put satellites in it would be a little cost-prohibitive. But awesome. <laughs> I would love to see it. It's it's just too geeky to, well, you know, the to, day, to deny. I know. And the yeah. day this happens, oh, this would be big news, you know? Oh, hell yeah. The, the live feed of the launch of the Pirate Party satellite or satellites would have geeks around the world, even geeks working in those companies that track down. Other you know, other geeks and other pirates and stuff. Even those geeks would be glued to their their web browser, watching the live stream of the satellite launching. Oh, yeah. because it is just geeky epicness. <laughs> <laughs> geeky epicness, I like it. Now, Brett, uh, this week Windows Seven, Windows Phone Seven went live at a launch in London. Mm-hmm. Bunch of handsets out. 
Yes. And did you hear that uh, it was a New Zealand guy who got the first Windows Phone 7 handset in the world? Oh, really? Oh, we should have had yeah. him on the show. I would have thought you would have gotten that one. So what do you, what do you make of it? Uh, it's quite pretty. And once again, it's gone the way of tons of different kinds of phones made specifically for different telecoms. And each of them has put their own little flavor, their own little stamp on Windows uh, Windows Phone 7, as you'd expect. I thought Windows Phone 7 looks pretty nice. They've they've taken a really good step here. They've they've learnt from the iPhone, basically. Well, I was wondering whether it has the cool, it'll have the coolness factor. Will it have the coolness factor of Android and iPhone? Hmm. Well, that is a tricky one because they are very late to the party. They are very late to the, the the smartphone party with Windows Phone Seven. But bear that in mind that Windows Mobile which was, what was it, Windows CE 6.5 or whatever the previous one, which has been around for like donkey's years. Oh, Windows uh, Mobile 6.5. Yeah, that thing has still got a huge market share and that's that's the market that this Windows Phone 7... Well, I don't know. It's not, it can't be that huge. I'm just looking at the market share figures now. For 2010, latest figures I've got, RIM, this is in the smartphone market share, okay? So just yep. looking at smartphones. Uh, because really, that, that's where you have to start segmenting that out from ordinary phones. Yes. Like my $49 job. Um, <laughs> RIM with 42. This oh, is by, this is by, uh, by OS, well, OS manufacturer. So RIM 42, mm-hmm. iPhone second at 25, all of Microsoft 15. So yep. I don't know how that's... That's I have, still 15%. That, that, would be yeah, the, but, that would be the 6.5, the 6s, what it used to be, Windows CE on the PDA phones. So mm, all I of thought, that locked I well. thought they would have had more than that. It's like the, the iPad and stuff. So that, number that, four is Android at nine. Yeah. So you can see the, the, the difference here, 15% to nine. Android is strong and is picking up. Apple, massive, obviously. They were like one of the first in here. Well, well they've had the advantage of, of time, haven't they? <laughs> the Blackberry's been out for ages. Well, yeah, that. even longer. And, and because... Rim really targeted theirs a business. That is why they've got such a huge percentage. But guess who's number five? It's Palm, who's been around a lot longer at five point four percent. Yeah, because there will be people still with their with their Palm. Oh, what what are they? What was that? Palm Pilot? No, they had one which was the their specific their smartphone one because the Palm Pilot wasn't a phone. It was just a PDA. It was a PDA, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm. oh, what was it? It's like the cannot recall. I, I can't recall either. So look, let me just run through the figures again for the benefit of those listening to us on the on the podcast. RIM 42, iPhone 25, Microsoft 15, Android 9, Palm 5.4, and other three. So that's the, the current market share, and we'll see how that shifts with um, Windows Phone 7 out there. There are some really nice-looking devices that have been created for it. HTC's lineup is – HTC always goes – all out with their with their phones. They've got three or four different phones, each one paired with a different telecom. And it's their pro version I like the most. Uh, it's got a slide-out keyboard. Ah, uh, yes, yes. So you don't just on-screen keyboard. It's got, a, it's got your traditional sort of side slide, and then you put it landscape and do your typing. Dell, Dell's entry into the Windows Phone 7 smartphone was quite interesting. It's also got a slide-out keyboard 
but it slides out portrait style. So the entire keyboard is, so you're still keeping the phone lengthways and you just slide it out and you, you type yeah, on it that way. But is the keyboard wide enough when you, when you do that? Ah, that, that, it, that's the thing. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how it goes because the, the phone itself looks really nice. Well, look, I must say, Windows uh, Phone 7, I'm impressed by the OS. I, what I want to know, though, and I guess no one can really answer this. It's a question no one can answer. The only thing will be time. And that is, is mm-hmm. this going to go the way of the Zune or is it going to go the way of the Xbox? Well, the the Zune and the Zune store is integral to the Windows Phone 7. So all of its music and its video apps and all that stuff and its store backend and all that sort of stuff is all linked through Zune. Are they calling it the Zune store? Yeah, yeah, it's all, it's all still Zune branded, oh, that, that entire think, site. Oh, yeah, okay. It's like the Zune device itself you might not hear of anymore, but, but I should on, forget on that Xbox term. Marketplace oh, that's right. yeah, and all that they, sort of yeah. stuff, yeah, it's all Zune. That's right, that's I remember all, covering this in a story, actually, yeah, we did exactly. some episodes we did. ago, yeah. How it's, how it's kind of <laughs> gone from being just a device to being the... A platform, basically. Yeah, the platform. Mm. Now, Brett, uh, just at the beginning of the show, we talked about Medal of Honor going on sale. It did their course this week. Mm-hmm. Even though there's been a lot of controversy about this. <laughs> yes, yes. A lot of Lots military of people. Yeah, a lot of military people uh, saying, oh, no, not a good idea. A lot of yep, people yep. with friends in the military saying, no, no, why we shouldn't have this game. And of course, everyone else going, yay, I want a copy. Indeed. Yay. It's, it's another first person shooter from a well done stable of first person shooters, war first person shooters. And it's just one that they decided to set in what is still. A, an eight-year-old war. It's set in 2002 in Afghanistan. So it's a war eight years ago. We've gone over this many times and I've, I've given my storm in a teacup on all the previous times. But yes, EA did finally relent and renamed the, the opposing force, the opposition, instead of the Taliban. That's right, they did. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's, that's their change. That's the only change. Other than that, the game is still exactly the same. And I think it will probably be a pretty good first-person shooter. Is it a game for you? Are you going to actually, would you buy this game? Possibly. I'll see how it goes because, yeah, there is, there is the new Call of Duty coming out too. Mm. But the reason <laughs> I, I ask coming out very soon. <laughs> the reason I ask, Brett, is because, as you know, I'm, I'm not a gamer. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say I haven't dabbled in a few games. And Indeed, you do like your first-person shooters, your your wolf variety. I, I shooters. do, I do. And in fact, uh, look, I can't say I played Call of Duty, but I did get roped into playing uh, Medal of Honor: Allied Assault years and years ago when it when it came out, and I really enjoyed it. I absolutely enjoyed it, and I you know, we used to play it at work with across the network and. Mm-hmm. It was great. I absolutely loved it. And I, I played the, the single player version, you know, the played right through the levels, uh, through the missions and, you know, absolutely loved it. And because of that, I've always remembered the name of the game, Medal of Honor. Yeah. I think I might get this one, this next one mm-hmm. as, as a non-gamer. This, this, this is my game as a non-gamer, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, but I have heard, as you said, you know, you talked about uh, Call of Duty coming out, the new one of that. That That's supposed to be... Uh, uh, Call of Duty Black Ops, yep. Yeah, that's supposed to be really good as well, isn't it? Yeah. They are both two stables of really good first-person shooters, of, of war first-person shooters. And, I, yeah, I, it's just odd that it's happened for this one, but there's... 
there's no furore about first-person shooters and stuff set in older wars. Other than, well, I mean, of isn't it the, the whole thing about time, you know? I mean, it's all forgotten now. Yeah. But well, not forgotten, but, you know, we've moved on. Well, exactly. It, it was eight years ago. It's still an ongoing. No, no, I mean the older world wars. Isn't oh, it, yeah, the isn't older it, wars. Isn't it they're thinking that, okay, we've moved on, so we don't have an issue, but... Yeah, the, when, is, this it, is, too when is it time to move on from this one? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Well, where do you draw the line? Mm. Well, I oh, guess because it's still ongoing. The, the war is still ongoing, and there are people... So, does that mean... Oh, no, it's not... It's definitely not the Hundred Years' War, because that obviously was the, the, long, the longest war because that's why it was called the Hundred Years' War. But it didn't go for a hundred years, did it? No, it didn't quite go for a hundred years. But this this war's been going on for quite some time, <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> and yeah, it's it, it's it's getting up there in the, the, the length of time. Yeah, I know what you're saying. It, it's, it's been going for a it, while, isn't it? It's less of a war and more day-to-day business now. And that's, yeah, what, yeah. that's what it is in the, in the general public. It doesn't generally figure into anybody's mind and unless they see a story that says something about it on the news. And then I'm sure a lot of them would be going, you know, because they've just seen so many stories that it's just another thing that's happening. That's, that's that part of the world. That part of the world is a war. But I still think it's a storm, a storm in a teacup over the name of the, oh, yeah. of the opposition force <laughs> in a computer game. Totally agree. I want to talk about a couple of Apple stories now. First of all, the iPhone 4 apparently is nearly twice as prone to accidental screen damage than the iPhone 3GS, which was its uh, you know previ- the previous version. Yeah. Why yeah. is that? Is it because well, it's more glass? More glass. It's that little aluminium bit around the thing. It's where you know it's it's made of metal and glass, whereas the previous one was made out of plastic. Had a big thick bit of plastic all the way around it. And unless you've got a bumper case, and I guess well, maybe the, the, the shock still transfers through. But, but yeah, the, the older ones were much more resilient when dropped. This new one, twice as likely to find yourself with a spidery screen. Do you think they're pushing the boundaries as to how they design these phones? They're really pushing the limits as to what they can get away with? Yeah, I think they are. Because if this is Apple we're talking about, they are the, the undisputed rulers in the realm of sexy device you can't you can't fault them for that but they're pushing that realm they yeah, need I think they are. every that, single version has to be sexier has to be sleeker has to be more desirable because it's that desirability that is going to see people upgrading from their previous iphone to this new generation iphone it's not like the os is any different the os is you know keeping current on both platforms it's that sexiness that desire that appeal of the device, which drives it. And that is something that Apple is really good at. But I think they are pushing the limits of what they can get away with in, in as much as creating something that is sleek and desirable and well-made and made out of nice components and still having that absolute resiliency of when you drop this thing, which has a big glass plane on it and it's got a metal rim on it and is sleek and small and you're going to break something. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I think maybe... Plastic, uh, it's a little more resilient. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think a better comparison, though, would also be to see where the stats fit in with other phone manufacturers. I mean, the, the fact is that if... And I don't know where this fits. I mean, it could be that already it's 10 times more durable than other phones. I don't know. I don't think so. But could, yeah, uh, it's, it's a shame well, they haven't really put, put given us figures. Be. Yeah. I wouldn't think it would be. I, I know that my bulk standard do nothing except phone, phone, well, you know, and with a camera. 
but my regular kind of phone survives drops quite well. I've oh, dropped it any time. Yeah, okay, but you, know, many you still want to compare it with something similar, like you know, one of the all glass front pane type smartphones. But yeah, anyway, well, the, I guess you'd just have to grab yourself an HTC Android phone, grab yourself a BlackBerry, and grab yourself an iPhone and drop them all. All right, let's do it. <laughs> See which one breaks. <laughs> I'm, See which one still keeps going. <laughs> Somebody who has <laughs> the an iPhone test. four that they can that they don't mind breaking, an iPhone 3 that they don't mind breaking, and BlackBerry and some Android phone and needs to scientifically drop them <laughs> from various heights and see when it is that they break. And then we can have a nice graph. Great. Oh, that would be fun. <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. Now, did you see that uh, Steve Jobs has come out really attacking Google for its Android? Wait. Steve Jobs has attacked Google? <laughs> okay, what's news here? <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, yeah, well, you <laughs> so know, what's the new part so what's the new part? I know, but this time he's come out saying, you know, cause up until now, uh, Google's comeback to a lot of things was that, you know, Android is far more open. Now, Steve Jobs is challenging that. Now he's saying it's not about what's open and closed. And in fact, he's saying that Android isn't that open. He's saying really it's a war about a fragmented system, fragmented platform versus an integrated platform. So what he's saying here is that with Android, Every manufacturer has a different implementation of Android, has their own sort of take to it. And so things yep. work differently. Whereas in contrast, he says that the iPhone is always the same, no matter what mm-hmm. iPhone you use. Do you, well, think it's a, do you think it's a fair, or is he sidestepping the whole open close thing? He's sidestepping or, or, or do you think the whole he's got o- a point? No, no, it's smoke and mirrors. He's sidestepping the whole issue of open versus closed there. Um which is the the issue that that Google's gone for, you know, the open versus closed environment. The open environment of Android means that the developers can do what they want with it. And so you get HTC, Motorola, Dell, Samsung, all of the different manufacturers creating Android phones being able to implement it how they want. The fundamental base of Android is exactly the same across all of them. It's the things they add on top of it, the different user interface. HTC wants yeah, to have their counts, interface as far their as way. Users are concerned. Motorola has it their way. Well, that's the user side of it, and that is the handset maker's decision. If HTC wants to put the time and effort into developing a nice user interface for their Android implementation, then they can do that, and they can create something which is nice and interactive and easy to use and, and has the appeal sort of thing, which will grab people. And if they want to create one which is specifically designed for a certain business environment, then they can do that as well. And they can just layer that on top. But the background, what happens underneath is exactly the same. So if I develop an app for Android, I know it's going to work on any of those different phones. No, but it won't. And this is where, well, this is where Steve Jobs well, what says he's that getting it, at is the, it's apps, about the, the, apps it's the user work. experience. No, no, no. He's also saying, though, that apps don't always work on all versions of, of, of Android. That's, you know, it's touch and go. You can well, pile something keep... for one version and it, and it may work with the next. It may not. It may not work for the previous one. Well, the same can be said for... Apple's operating systems. Apple has, you know, multiple times during their operating system life cycles changed their operating system to such an extent that apps developed for the previous operating system would not work on well, the latest no, operating yeah, system. Yes and no. I you mean, see do, that do, constantly yeah, with version fair, upgrades. Well, you cannot yeah, but with Apple, be using that. You have to be fair. With Apple, they've always got this, uh, you know, when they, for example, transitioned to Intel, they had this sort of emulation 
that that, that and, and same with uh, I think was it ten point three to ten point four or something. They had this emulation mm-hmm. to go to go back, and so you usually guaranteed about three or four versions back. Whereas uh, I think this is his point. I don't know, but I, I wonder because you know the other he's he's really trying to shift it from a closed versus open argument to a fragmented versus integrated. And I, you know, uh, maybe it's, as you say, smoke and mirrors, or maybe he has a point, or maybe a bit of both. Well, we've talked about this sort of thing in the past when we were talking about, um, you know, the Flash and Java platforms, where they are, they're cross-platform development tools. They allow you to create something which can run on anything. It's not going to be as optimized. It's not going to be as fast as something natively developed for the thing, but it's its versatility which outweighs the negatives of it, of its slowness and, and that sort of thing. This is exactly the same thing. The flexibility of the Android platform is its point of difference here. It can be made to do what you want. The developers can make it look how they want it to look. It can be used by multiple different manufacturers. It's not just stuck to the single company who makes the operating system, makes the handsets, and they're the only ones who do it. It's like you, you can't find a iPhone OS on anything except the iPhone. And the iPhones only come from the manufacturer of the iPhone OS. Android is made by a company that doesn't even make cell phones. And it's all of the other manufacturers who do the hardware part who then get the choice of putting whatever operating system they want from the you know, the operating system pool of choice onto their devices. And it's that flexibility, which is the the key bit to Android. Well, this is certainly one more that's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, no. It's, it, I think they're in there for, for the long run, both Google and Apple. No matter how much they, they like to compare the, these particular products, they are quite different products. They have completely different streams, completely different, different designs and approaches. <sighs> Google doesn't make cell phones. Google doesn't make the Google phone, which has the Google OS on it, and only on the Google phone. If they did, then it would be able to be directly compared with the iPhone and the iPhone OS and the iPhone platform and app delivery and development. Then you could do that, but they're quite different. Now, you said Flash just before, and you reminded me that the other thing that Apple announced was that on new Macs, they are no longer going to pre-install Flash. Ah. <laughs> like we didn't see that coming. Well, I thought they were over the. I, I don't know. I thought they got over that, but obviously not. No, no. But they're not, they're not preventing Apple's it either, though. Just taste for Flash is still quite. <laughs> I know. Quite apparent, and this oh, is just yes. you know an, an extra step. They're not going to pre-install, but they're not preventing Flash. it. But it, then, yeah, they're not preventing it, and that would be the big. That would be the key here. Yeah. If they prevented Flash on the Mac as they've done with the iPhone, they would seriously shoot themselves in the foot. Apple claim the reason they're doing that is because what ends up happening is they end up shipping Macs with security holes because of the outdated outdated version of Flash or unpatched version of Flash. Windows doesn't come pre-installed with Flash. Oh, there you go. So they're basically getting to the same status quo as Windows. Yeah, Yeah. it's Windows does not come pre-installed with Flash. IE does not Good come point. pre-installed with Flash. Good point. Hadn't thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> that puts a new perspective on things, doesn't it? It does. It just makes it a little less sour, if you know what I mean. Exactly. Exactly. They're now, going from <laughs> pre-installing something where they couldn't keep it as the you know, most up-to-date one because the, the 
Mac might have been sitting in a box for a month. <laughs> and you know how many updates we get in a month? <laughs> Quite a lot of security updates come yeah, out in a month. Yeah, especially so, Adobe ones. Yeah, exactly. So you want to come with as minimal third-party installations as possible on your pure OS. In fact, and you I, get I think... Users. As long as you're, you know, when the browser fires up and goes to a website that requires Flash, that it still nicely fails over and says, hey, would you need to install this plugin. As long as that facility is still there, then then you're sweet. They'll still absolutely, and they still allow that. And you know, Apple kind of have a point in the sense that which vendor has the worst track record currently for security holes? It's not Microsoft. No, no, it's Flash. It's Adobe, yeah, and Flash in particular, but yes, uh, yeah. Adobe generally. So, oh, it's it's yeah, very you know, sound reasoning. It's I, I I have pondered why they have so many third party things pre-installed on Macs because of that exact same reason that that these machines will be pre-installed at the factory and then they'll be sitting around for several months before somebody buys them and then somebody puts them on the internet and either then has to update everything all in one go or if they don't open up the web browser for a couple of weeks after they've turned on their Mac and updated their Mac and have just been, you know, doing word processing or whatever and then fire up the web browser, then So, yeah, why pre-install? <laughs> it's much better to get uh, to rely on the, the nice seamless flow of you fire up your web browser, go to a website that requires Flash, and it goes, oh, you don't have Flash installed. Go here to install the latest Would version. Would you like it? I mean, that's how easy it is. You don't have Flash. Would you like it? Yes, please. Exactly. And away exactly. you go. All right. Now, here's some radical thinking. A former music label boss reckons that the best way to beat piracy in terms of, you know, music piracy online mm-hmm. is to sell albums for one pound. We're talking British pounds here. Yeah. So make them cheaper. Make them cheaper. Make them really, but not just cheaper, like make them really cheap. Yeah. Mm. Really cheap. Because, yeah, yeah. He Well, he does have a point. Are you trying to maximize your market by selling lots cheaply? Or are you going to price them up to a point where people seriously have to consider whether or not that can be a, a frivolous purchase for them? Or will they listen to it on the radio or download it on the internet? Exactly. Make, and that's make something it a no-brainer. Make it a no-brainer. You've got to make it an easy thing. It's a good idea. You've got to start putting this into realistic terms of you want the music to sell. You want to you want your product to sell. You can't price yourself out of the market. Oh, I think it's a fantastic idea. It's just not going down so well with the music industry right now. Of course, of course. It's the difference between those trying to cling to their old ideals and trying to go, well, no, this costs this much. It costs this much to make it and it's this much to do it and we've got this much markup on it so we sell it at this much. And because we don't sell as many anymore, we're going to have to make it slightly more expensive to cover the fact that we don't sell as many. <laughs> they need to properly be evaluating these different way that they're doing this and just look at the, the impact of the market from, you know, music download sites, iTunes. What's the, what's the, the income that's coming from those streams? And can you, you know, maximize those streams by making more available cheaper? I mean, I'd probably, you know, one one pound is is two dollars New Zealand. It's, I think, what what would that be about seventy cents, US? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'd buy, I'd buy an album for that. 
well, it's more than 70 cents, like a dollar 40, isn't it? US? Yeah, it'd be a buck 40. Two dollars New Zealand is about a buck 40. Oh, sorry, I'll say that uh, again. We're sitting at about 70 cents. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So hang on, let me do that again. One. And uh, a pound is about two dollars something. Two dollars ten, two oh nine, but very yep. close to two. Okay, let's do that. I'll say that bit again. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd, buy, I'd buy an album for that. I mean, one British pound in New Zealand dollars is not much more than $2, uh, which is in US currency, about a sixty. It's it's not a lot of money. I would buy an album easily for that. Oh, yeah. I would buy an album and listen to the other music on it at least once to see if anything was good. Exactly, because right now I, I, the I album guarantee... Purely because of one song. Exactly, because right now I guarantee if I see an album I'm a bit iffy about, I'll just buy one track. Exactly. I'll just buy the song I want. Exactly. Which <laughs> is less than a British pound. Yep. Yep. I, I, I don't go out and buy albums very much anymore at all. I, I go to iTunes and I buy the song I want. I've heard it on the radio. It's been stuck in my head. I buy that song. I might listen to some of the snippets of some of the other songs from that particular artist to see if I might like any of the others if I don't know them. But if I don't, then I, I, I will feel well satiated in the fact that I only paid for one. <laughs> I only paid for the one song I want and didn't pay for an entire album of music that I wasn't going to listen to ever again. Except, of course, it won't happen. So I want to talk about, mm. I want to cast your mind back many months ago. Earlier in the year, US internet traffic was being rerouted via some Chinese servers and no one really knew why. Well, it turns out that finally they, they've done a bit of an investigation and they think the reason behind it is that it was a Chinese state-run telecom provider that was the source of that, that was redirecting the, the US traffic. So it looks like someone deliberate. So it was rerouting traffic to places outside of China, from places outside of China, and rerouting the traffic through China, is what you're saying. So I'm sitting in America and I'm looking at an English website but instead of my route for that traffic going from me across the Atlantic into Europe and to England, I was instead going the opposite direction via China and then to this British website. That's what you're telling me. The fact that this was traced back to a state-run provider in China really tells a, a story, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it well. It makes you think a little more close, <laughs> a little harder about how could that have happened? How could it have been a state-run telecom that this went through? Did somebody hack into them or was it? Sanctioned by the yeah, a, yeah, by a the sanctioned, Chinese a, government. Yeah, because it was quite a lot of, you know, major Fortune 500 companies had their stuff there and many branches of the US government all had their traffic. Including yeah. the military. Mm. Yeah, including the military. They all had their traffic basically hijacked and redirected through Chinese networks instead of being routed around because a lot of stuff that would go from America to other places wouldn't go particularly through China as the shortest path. In fact, not much <laughs> would go through China, I'd imagine. Well, yeah, because I, I wouldn't see China as the, one of the major internet hub sites. Well, I, I don't know. I think they probably because, have the potential well, to be, but because well, of they've the got great the potential firewall. To be. But yeah, they've got the great firewall. So most yeah. people, I would have thought, would have routed around them for most traffic, except for stuff that needed to go into China to stuff that was housed in China. You wouldn't go through China. 
No, I, I can't see them doing deals with countries on either side of them to route traffic through their country. They just don't seem to. It's not really in their in their way of working. So you're you're right. It's it's very suspicious indeed. Absolutely. Mm. Want to move on to another story, Brett? Six dot com has sold once more. Ah, sold for thir- <laughs> yeah, thirteen million. And you may remember in two thousand and six, it sold uh, for fourteen million. So it's, yeah. it's lost a million dollars. It has depreciated by a million dollars. So years. But I think that is more likely to be because the current, well, the company that bought it has gone bankrupt, and that is why it's just been sold. <laughs> so they never, they never amounted to much. So they they bought it for fourteen million in two thousand and six. Never did very much, and went bankrupt, and it has now been on sold for. 13 million. But wow, it, one of the most prestigious URLs you could possibly have, domain names, sex.com, and one of the most famous domain names. It's got two books about it and just its past, its history. Yeah, is, it's got a bit of a history to it, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, and it's been integral to the development of our domain registry systems that we have, the governance behind domain registration. Oh, has it? Yeah. Because the sex.com was originally created in 1994, it was first registered by its original owner, Gary Kremen, who also founded Match.com, a dating site. But he lost the domain because a con artist named Stephen Cohen basically sent a letter to Network Solutions, as they were called then, the domain registrar, and said, transfer this domain name to me. And Network Solutions never checked the legitimacy of it, and they just transferred it to him. The original owner sued Network Solutions and Cohen, and it went through court cases, and the lower court ruled that domain names could not be, were not tangible assets, so they could not be subject to the same sorts of laws as tangible assets, you know, ownership and that sort of thing. Um, but Kremen pursued it, and in, I think it was about 2003, an appeals court ruled in Kremen's favor and said that he did have the right to the domain name. And Network Solutions, which had been bought up by another company, was liable for giving away the domain without verifying that it was the rightful owner. Oh, I see. So they had to change their processes, basically. Yeah, so basically the, the, the process for domain registration and verification of who owns it and that entire process all came about because of this case, because of sex.com. Oh, there you go. Sex.com improved the reliability and set the precedent that domain names were a tangible thing that could be owned and that domain registrars would be held accountable for the management of the domains within their register. So, yeah, it's, it's had two books. Two books were written about this huge debacle and the, the, the ripple-on effect. You know, where I work, I designed the page that rejects you when you go to a, a site that's been blocked, like pornography or malware and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it pops up with a message, you know, saying that you, you can't go here and if you need more information as to why, please contact these people. So I designed that page and every now and again they'll, they'll want to change to it and I'll need to test it. So whenever I want to test it, I always type in sex.com. That's kind of <laughs> just what I do. Well, yeah. 
it's it comes to mind. It's it's so easy. It is. Um, it has been called, uh, you know, one of the jewels in the internet domain name crown. <laughs> you know, I just hope though that the bosses at work know what I do for my job because otherwise they'll have I'll have a hard time explaining why the why the weblogs keep showing that I'm always trying to go to sex dot com. <laughs> I'm sure they know that you are there to test <laughs> that well, you do test. Well, right. I hope so. Well, if not, here's proof. In, in this podcast, I can send them to this podcast, and we know it was recorded on Tuesday, the 26th of October. So there's proof. Anyway, no, mm-hmm. of course I'm, 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 you know, I'm blowing this out of proportion. But indeed, you know, it's it's uh, it's a good good site to to test. Yeah, and knowing and that if it does let me through, I'm not going to get anything too bad on my screen. Exactly. But yes, uh, the 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 URL has certainly generated some income for its owners over the site. Uh, it's been recorded that Cohen, while he illegally owned the site, raked in probably around about $40 million from the site over the, the time that he owned it. <laughs> That's a lot of revenue. Yeah. Where did yeah. that money go? Overseas, because basically after the court case was settled and Crimin had won a huge judgment against Cohen and Network Solutions, Cohen had moved all of his money overseas and had scarpered. Ah. Brilliant stories. Have you, have you read the books? No. No. <laughs> I am now tempted. They are called, for those interested, the Sex.com Chronicles by Charles Carrion. And Sex.com, One Domain, Two Men, Twelve Years, and the Brutal Battle for the Jewel in the Internet Scrap by Kieran McCarthy. I'm definitely going to give them a look so look over, though, because <laughs> it's just such a bizarre, twisty-turny tale. And it's had such a fundamental impact on the entire domain registry system. I remember back in the days when domain names here in New Zealand were free. All you had to do is send an email to the DNS guy at Waikato University saying, here's my zone file, and you just you, know, you have to draw up a zone file. Can you insert this into the .nz namespace, please? And you get an email back a couple of days later saying, sure, all done. And there's your domain live. Yeah. Remember uh, that? I know. So I should have kept the ones I did. <laughs> no, but you, then you well, you still have to start paying for them once they you know changed and whatever it was yeah. two thousand and no, oh, it was they 90, should have had grandfather clauses. Jeez, yeah, oh, that would be nice. Yeah, <laughs> the ones that were created free get to stay free. That would have been nice. <laughs> anyway, one last story, Brett. We've been following a solar-powered plane. Well, not so much literally, but following the story about a solar-powered plane in Switzerland mm-hmm. uh, over the last I don't know year or so. Some brilliant technology went into that oh, plane. Yes, yeah. very cool. And uh, cool. yeah, I know. And now, uh, what's happening is a solar-powered boat is being built. It's being funded by the Swiss, uh, built mm-hmm. in Germany, and will set sail from Monaco. And Ooh. it's kind of a similar concept, but it, it's a boat. And oh, that uh, that combines my greatest passions: boating, love boating, and awesomely cool technology. <laughs> You'll have to go over there and take a look at this thing. Well, I'll just have to go to Sydney when it arrives there. When does it go to Sydney? Uh, it's scheduled on its crossing. Uh, where is it? On its way between San Francisco and Sydney. It's, it's doing it around its the website. world, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, doing yeah, its around the world. Around the world trip. Stopping in Miami, Cancun, San Francisco, Sydney, Singapore, Abu Dhabi, and going back to Monaco. I, yeah, <laughs> I would be incredibly tempted to go over and see it in Sydney. That's just a short hop away. It is. 
So this, uh, I, I guess, you know, same thing with this, with this, uh, with the plane. Uh, they need it to to be able to sail through through nighttime as well. So it's got mm-hmm. a bunch of batteries on board. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's got some impressive solar panels on it, and it's it's extra, you know, slidey out solar panels. <laughs> it can unfurl itself. <laughs> it's pretty spectacular, and very sleek. It's really good looking boat too. Do you think solar power might be the, the future for both seagoing and airborne craft? Well, the as the efficiency of photovoltaic cells goes up, because it's using, uh, this particular boat's using some pretty impressive efficiency of their cells that they're using there. What is it, like 18-something percent efficient? Well, that's huge when you consider that the bulk standard sort of solar cell that used to sit on people's houses, you know, house roofs was what, like five or six percent? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, uh, no, this ridiculous. is a huge, I know, this, this is these, a these huge, are really huge advanced. jump, but yeah. it's still like only 18 odd percent. <laughs> the, you know, every improvement is going to massively increase this. And it's got a huge amount of these solar panels. It creates, uh, it's got an output capable of what, about 93 and a half kilowatts. So a huge amount of power coming out of that. But once again, a huge amount of batteries to store it all for the times when it's cloudy or the times when it's dark. Mm. But a very nice looking boat. A cool project, <laughs> that's for sure. Absolutely. Yes, yes, indeed. So when's it going to set sail? Or In fact, it already has, hasn't it? Yes, yes, it already has. And if you take a trip to its website, which is planetsolar.org, I've got a little map there where you can follow its voyage. It's currently sitting off the coast of the Western Sahara. Mm, West Africa, the Western yep, African just, coast. Just southwest of the Canary Islands. Wow. How cool is that? That is very cool. Very, very cool. It's got some very impressive stats as this boat. So if you, as, as you said, Brett, if, if people want to check it out, planetsolar.org is the website. Planetsolar.org. And it's got a great name. It's got a very geeky name as well. What's the name? The MV Turinor. People who are fascinated with J.R.R. Tolkien will know that it's elvish for power of the sun. Ah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that is, that is very cool. All very so there, geeky. There's all, a all lot both. of geekiness about this boat. It's great. <laughs> Brett, you should be there. <laughs> I'm so going to look at that website and find out when it's in Sydney. <laughs> See stuff. if I can get some time off work. All righty, Brett, on that note, let's wrap up the show. That was episode 89 for Tuesday, the 26th of October. I'd like to thank you for co-hosting the show with me once again. Always a pleasure, Ed. And thank you to all the people listening to us. Without you, we wouldn't have a show. See you all again next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.